Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. on your life to a year where it felt like everything important to you first began? The 80s were a wonderful time to catch up on old Hollywood. The prints were available, the old cinemas were still available. You would pat the projector at the end of the night, say a good job, and that way you kept them happy, and the next day they'd come and perform well for you again, if you're lucky. Then overnight, digital projection changed the way we see movies forever. We sort of knew it was coming, but we didn't really have a sense of what it could mean. And now, it's threatening to change the way we'll remember them. A film running through a projector is transferred to an audience. I think there is a life to that image. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of reels of unidentified films sitting in archives throughout the world. People have their little fiefdoms and whatever and whatnot. Well, you know, shouldn't the importance be to save the films? The preciousness of this print, I, I cannot tell you how it makes you feel. The argument that, well, my kids won't watch black and white, one of two things has to happen. Your kids have to grow up. Hey, I saw a photocopy of the Mona Lisa. I know what the Mona Lisa looks yeah, like. It's like, yeah, yeah. technically you do know what the Mona Lisa looks like, but you haven't seen it. Film has a substance which is entirely lacking in what I basically think is big screen television. That's baloney. Are we the last generation to be able to see movies this way? Yes. The art form of projected film is on its way out, not because it's not good. Wow, you forget how good it is. The only people who are seeing this risk in any degree are the people who are actually displaced, the projectionists. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 478. Releasing November 25 in select cinemas across Australia is Splice Here, a projected odyssey, a documentary that delves into the digital shift from recording and projecting movies on film and its impact on the art and industry of cinema. A passion project 10 years in the making, Splicey, a projected odyssey, is a fascinating and illuminating exploration into an art form that is slowly making its presence known again. And for more information, please go to splicehere.website. You can find out more info about the film, session times, etc. Uh, check out the website, go watch the film. Um, before that, I'm going to talk now to the director of Splice Here, a filmmaker, a projected odyssey, Mr. Rob Murphy. Rob, I thank you so very much for joining me today. No, thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. It's really interesting how this film kind of came together. It is a 10-year journey for you, and it's definitely a project of love. I mean, not only are you a filmmaker, but you're a projectionist. You work at the Sun Theatre. You project 70-millimeter film there. Um, but this kind of this started off as a short film, didn't it? I mean, you didn't really imagine it would kind of like 
kind of spiral into the into how many hours you filmed over the years and and what we're seeing now, which will come out, would be a two-hour documentary. How did a kind of short film kind of idea come to you? Was it just a thing where you saw where the industry was going? You knew how it kind of had an effect in the community that you were part of and you wanted to just get something on film to kind of like make your opinions and make your, you know, uh, uh, make it known just what people are going to be missing out on as, as you know, silly lawyer gets transferred to digital, not only in filmmaking, but also in the projection rooms as well. It, yeah, it, it really was a knee-jerk reaction um, to me being a projectionist and, and, you know, showing up for work and seeing things changing so quickly. I mean, we all knew it was coming, but we didn't really, um, you know, how it would know how it would affect us until it happened. And there were lots of other beautiful little short films that I was seeing online at the time of people, you know, covering what was thought to be the end of film. Mm. And all of them were very, were beautiful, but very sad little exposés about something finishing. And I thought, well, uh, being a filmmaker and a projectionist, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm kind of the guy who should be doing it here. So I, I literally just grabbed a camera and ran for a couple of years um, with my cinematographer friend Joanne and uh, we were just running from site to site and this was being decommissioned and because the projectionist underground is so kind of small it's a very small community um, people knew what I was doing and I get calls saying oh do you know they're pulling this out of readings you know tomorrow get down there and so it literally just raced down there so I didn't really know what I was making I was just covering the end of what was happening here in Melbourne. And I just I just couldn't let it all go without doing something to preserve it, I think, was the driving force to begin with. And um, it really just grew out of that. Uh, as I said, I, I, I didn't really have time to consider how everything was going to go together yet. <laughs> it, was, it was really just running very quickly. It wasn't a couple of years in that we kind of realised, all right, how is this going to start to go together? And mm. I, I mostly, as a filmmaker, mostly have an editing background. So in my head, I was kind of putting things together as we went. So I, I, I had to become the presenter of, of the, um, the whole thing because I, piece by piece we were slowly covering more and more facets and I wanted to cover more and more parts of the whole end of film equation you know, from uh, print restoration to the projectionist to the whole, you know, the whole gamut. And so it, it just grew and grew and grew. And so we, we had to have a central point to tell the story and that became me, um, not really by choice. Uh, and the longer, the longer that went along and, and the more the project uh, grew, the more I started to sort of draw on my own life as a backbone narrative. It's interesting how you, you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question. You you talk about your own personal experiences with with film. Grew up in country Australia. It's interesting. You fell in love with movies by first watching them on the TV. Of course, you know geographically you didn't have many movie theaters around you where you were. So TV was your access point to a lot of films, especially classic films. Um, myself, you know, before I even watched a movie in a cinema, I grew up in a VHS generation, so a lot of stuff I saw was on TV too, but through videotape. Um, and it was 1977, Star Wars comes out. You make that trek into the city. I think you watched it, what was it, 40 times uh, did you see it in, in the cinema? Oh, no, it was only, only 12. 12, I'm okay. Only, uh, 
I'm only a mid-level, you know, nerd. Yeah, some people have seen it 40, 50 times, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's really interesting to me is that I clearly remember my first time I saw a movie um, in, the, in the cinema as well. It was um, uh, Short Circuit when that came out. Um, that was the mm. first time my older brother took me to a cinema. It was just such a strange experience because it's a large room with people we haven't met before. The lights go down. And when I was of that age, I think I was maybe like seven or eight or so, maybe a little younger, I was a little scared. And then the light hits from the projection room. Mm. And it's kind of in a weird way. Some people like try to equate their love of um, cinema as kind of like as an almost religious experience. In a certain kind of way, symbolically, it is. All of a sudden, you're in a dark room and then the light shines. You've seen the light. Or as John Belushi says in Blues Brothers, I've seen the goddamn light, you know, and, and he, he becomes illuminated. Um did that feel like the same kind of thing to you as well, where the, that experience of watching a film in a cinema, you know, with a projectionist behind the curtain, um, behind in that little dark room, and you're seeing not only any film, but like a film that had such an impact on generations of filmmakers. Um, what does that do for you and your young mind? Does that really seal the deal as to you didn't know exactly what you were going to do in film, but you knew that this in front of you was going to be your future in some way? Uh, it was it was even bigger than that. It, it was really the moment. Um, I, I had been to the movies a few times before, like maybe once every couple of years. We'd go into the into the city with my parents, and we'd see you know a Disney flick or something like that. But I don't really remember seeing any of those in the city. The first thing, and and Star Wars, as you said, it is so impactful. Mm. And seeing it at the cinema center where they had a a curved Cinerama screen. Uh, and uh, six-track magnetic 70 mil prints, it was just, it really did. From that first moment when the credit hits the screen with the music, it, I was completely hooked, spellbound. I just, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. When you are going on now from that time to now, um, especially in the last 10 years, when the process of how film is projected on screen is, has changed so much now, you yourself, who, who worked as a projectionist, and others, you know, as well, and, and myself, who like have, have had a kind of like intimate relationship with film, whether writing about it or you know watching it, etc. We know we see the differences between like the digital and, and, and film, etc. But when it comes to like the average punter, like at the cinema that you work at or other cinemas or multiplexes, for example, do you think that the difference was noted between the in the in that evolution between I wouldn't even say evolution, but in that transition between um, uh, celluloid to digital, um, especially since over the, over that time, so many eyeballs have kind of been in tune to the digital experience in so many facets. It's not only digital in, in the cinemas, it's on TV, it's on phones, it's on iPads, there's so many things. Do you think that the difference uh, has been noted by the average punter? I think at the time it was absolutely noticed because the changeover was such a mess. I mean, before we actually got DLP projection proper, you know, what we call, the you know, digital now, uh, in that, that interim period, the distributors were sending out MP4s or MOV files, and and we were showing them with data projectors, like mm. domestic data projectors. And a lot of them hadn't been encoded correctly, and so the frame rates, there were drop frames throughout the whole thing where there'd suddenly be a jerk, or um, they'd just been done badly, or the sound hadn't been um, encoded properly for 5.1. And it was just a mess for 
for a good year, um, the movie going experience was terrible. And, and for projectionists, it was appalling. It, we was personally, I was just so embarrassed to have, have to work this way and have to show things this way because it was, it was awful. So yeah, a lot of people, um, did notice because they, their film stopped halfway through or was cancelled on a regular basis. Mm. And even when um, full 2K came in uh, with with DCI specs, um, like the, the full digital projectors, even those experiences, there was a lot of teething problems, a lot of green screens, a lot of pictures upside down, a lot of uh, images cut in half, one side purple, one side black and white. I, I can go on forever with the, the multitude of bizarre things that the digital projectors did to us in those early days. Once it was all ironed out, um, I think I think people were so relieved just to have it get all the way through a film without something going wrong uh, that, yes, they, they, were, they were happy with the experience. But as you say, to, to to the more discerning viewer, to the the cinephile, uh, I think yes, it's it, it was it was a very different experience. I don't want to get bogged down with you know is it better, is it worse? But I will say it was absolutely different. And yeah, I, in the film, I do come from you know a very solid bias of film is is my preferred medium, but. Um, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to think about digital as the bad guy. I, I, I think it's, I think it had to happen, um, certainly because we're at a point where you consider that every title, every film that is that was made in the film film era in those last 20, 30 years or whatever um, on acetate, we we had to print say four hundred prints for Australia of every title to to go around the country. So all of that film would live for, for a couple of months and then most of it would be destroyed afterwards. So ecologically, it was just becoming unsustainable and so wasteful. So I think digital is great in that way. Uh, and digital is, it, it's finding, it's still finding its feet artistically. I think it, 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 took, it took the cinephiles a long time to sort of accept digital into their um, visual palette, they, they, you know, accept it for the way it looks. Um, so only now do I think digital is really finding its way, uh, especially with from my end with with the uh, new laser projectors, the third generation of laser digital projectors. Uh, are really so much better than than the previous generations. We're finally getting some nice deep blacks, and you know a better color rendition. And uh, we've only just sorry, I'm going on and on here, but no, no, go ahead. But uh, we've only just caught up in terms of what film can deliver. Thirty five mil film can deliver in terms of resolution. Mm. A lot of people don't really understand the concept of two K and four K. They, they've heard it, they know it's a buzzword, they can apply it to their TV and everything. And so, but they don't really understand what it means. I mean, because film for the last, easily I could say the last 80 years has been natively 4K in resolution. Mm. So digital is only now just catching up with what film used to do, just, just on that 
equation, just on the resolution equation. There's a lot more to it, of course, comparatively. So, um, and uh, 70 mil is, you know, up around 9K of resolution. So there's still a long way to go before digital has actually replaced every facet of film projection. It's um, interesting as well in the film how you kind of go and introduce Oz behind the curtain. We we look we talk to the projectionists, um, many people who you know over the years have uh, lost their jobs rather unceremoniously as well. I might might add uh, to that. Um, and it's interesting how we you also uh, kind of uh, approached it that the work as really kind of like a high stakes endeavor. A lot of people kind of like in the film kind of compare it as a rush. I think some one person said, I don't know if it was you or someone else, it was um, you're stuck in a small dark room surrounded by things that can kill you. I mean, it's such a <laughs> such a great quote to take from that movie. How important was it to really introduce the men behind the machine? Because I think what people kind of think tend to think these days is that a projectionist, especially with the digital stuff, is you just switch a button and you walk away. And, and I guess in some contexts it is that. I mean, I think someone else was saying that um, uh, – the evolute the the transitions become from um I got a note here uh projectionists to machine operators but it wasn't always like that the projectionist was there they'll sit through the whole film to make sure that everything was 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 working well um so in case something does go wrong with the framework so they can fix it up and and oftentimes there were it's rare but there were occasions where you know the film would catch fire and I think I, I remember someone saying in your documentary as well that there was an average of like three deaths a year in like in projection rooms around the mm. states I mean it was a high disc high risk almost life and death endeavor so how important was it to really show them these men in that small darkened room who they are what they did um and just exactly what people just might be missing without them well, I, I guess the, the one thing that did, that was right in my mind from the forefront of starting this was I did want to tell a projectionist's story. I did want to make this film for the projectionists because, um, yeah, so many of those short films were just about projectionists sitting there saying, I've lost my job, I've lost my lifestyle, this is the end. Yeah. There's a lot more to it than that and a lot more moving forward. So. Um, yeah, I, but I also wanted it to be accessible to the average person. So there's, uh, there have been uh, other feature films, other feature documentaries where projectionists just sit there and talk for an hours, hours and hours. And, yes, these people have locked themselves in tiny booths for their entire working lives just about. And a lot of them are not great conversationalists. So, <laughs> you know, I wanted, I wanted this to be an adventure. I wanted people to experience what it is to be a projectionist through us recreating situations um, in uh, creating exciting sequences where they could actually participate in the action or the the adrenaline um, but uh, historically projectionists are sort of broken up into three eras there's kind of the the um, the early guys the the nitrate guys and that's the first film stock um, which which could easily catch on fire. So those were the people that really had to know their stuff um, and they faced danger every day. Then there was the um, the multiplex, what I call the, the multiplex projectionists, and that sort of happened in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and that's sort of the, the group of people that I fit into. And that's that's what Alan was referring to in that quote where he said projectionists turned from projectionists into machine operators. And I know what he means in that, 
that first era of people, they were highly trained in electronics. They could fix an amplifier. They could fix any part of the whole system that broke down. Uh, in my era, we had we had a bit of that knowledge, but we were so uh, in in such a hurry to keep all the films running that we didn't have time to learn any more than that. You had specialists that would come in and if something broke down. Having said that, I have run some shows with a rubber band in place and my finger stuck holding the film against the sound drum because, you know, it, was, it wasn't lining up properly and stand there for an hour and a half just so the sound would work properly. Um, there's lots of funny horror stories um, that I could have told. And every projectionist will will have horror stories of having maybe dropped a print um, from the multiplex days because the whole film would be joined up in one big piece on a mm. on what we call a collar, a circular piece of metal. So the whole film was like that. And because you might be working in a complex with 12, 14 screens or something like that, and the turnaround times over the years got shorter and shorter and shorter, you were so rushed to get all the films on on time that you would literally, you would have to pick up the whole film on that collar uh, and and carry it beside you. This is like 25, 30 kilos of film. And if it wasn't wrapped tightly, it could all unravel and fall apart. And that would literally be the end of the print. And you had to take this risk on regular on a regular basis in, in the multiplex days. Um, we had uh, we had a union here in uh, which was abolished in the eighties, and after that, things really started to change a lot more. In that, uh, trained projectionists were being replaced by chalk toppers, and mm. this is you know I don't want to knock the chalk toppers at all, but kid, uh, people from the front of house were being trained to to do the bare minimum of lace up a film press the buttons to put it on timer and then, you know, do the next one. And a lot of those people became very proficient and became great projectionists, but a lot of them didn't. And a lot of film got damaged. Um, a lot of shows, the standard of shows dropped because everything became more and more automated. So it was kind of the, the beginning of the end. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by T Public. Public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Public is sure to have something you will love. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Amazon. The world's leading online store, Amazon is your first stop to buy a wide range of products at competitive prices with fast delivery times. Amazon is also a world-class entertainment hub that includes Prime Video, Audible, Twitch, Amazon Music, and more. Sign up with Amazon today and experience the best in online shopping and entertainment. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews and top 10 lists, and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. Something I've heard you say previously in regards to film, film stock, and even like equipment, like um, projection equipment, um, but especially film, was um, uh, it comes down to preservation, restoration, accessibility, and accessibility. In regards to all of this, the unsung heroes of 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 that is like the collector. 
um, these collectors of not only film reels over the years, but also the collectors of it, like projection equipment. Like these guys will have like just certain little trinkets here and there, or or what have you, and um, and they will hold it onto them for a very long time. What was kind of surprising to me, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but what was kind of surprising was the bond that the collector had with the with their stock with their film stock to the point where some collectors would be buried with their film. They didn't want anyone to touch mm-hmm. it. And in a certain way, and I can kind of understand it because film, especially, is such a fragile thing, right? Um, you're t- in, and in a lot of ways, you can archive film, and then by the time you get to it to restore it, um, maybe the processes, uh, the ravages of time will have taken over and a lot of the film will be ruined. Um, when you hear the, these stories about these collectors and how much they care for film over the years, and, and in a lot of ways how studios at first didn't really think much of them, but now they really like them because when they start restoring things, they, they look to these guys and, and ask them for their stock. Um, what's, what's your kind of like a reaction to some of these stories you heard about, especially ones about, you know, guy, people who like wouldn't even, you know, uh, number one, give film stock to um, studios because they know they wouldn't get it back because that happens quite a bit as well. To the, and also to the point where they might hide it, they might be buried with. It. I mean, it's it's kind of, in some one ways it, it's really fascinating, in other ways it's kind of sad. But overall, it's, it's just a, such an intriguing uh, element to this whole story. Yeah, yeah. The, the Collector Underground is is there's a whole documentary just in that. Um, and they they are a very passionate, important group of people who used to be, um, particularly in the states, used to be um, pursued by the FBI for illegally. It's it's still illegal to own a film print in the states. Um, Is that because of here. the combustible nature in regards to it? No, no. It's um uh, that that sort of film nit- uh, nitrate finished at around about 1950. Then we had safety film. Um, which 20 years later we just discovered as this goes off and and turns into uh, gives you vinegar syndrome and mm-hmm. the color starts to fade so that was a bit of a disaster and now we're on polyester and supposedly polyester will last for 300 years but you know the, the jury's still out as <laughs> maybe we'll discover in another 20 years that polyester has some sort of a chemical flaw that Kodak didn't know about um, but anyway, but yes, the collectors. Um, so I think it's very it's very sad when um, people feel that they need to hoard their collections and to the point of being buried with them. I find that's a very it's a very spiteful thing to do. Um, I do understand the the wariness that has developed over the years, because as I alluded to at the beginning, um, the FBI used to prosecute people in the States. Um, film busts have happened here as well. So the collectors be- did become very wary of, of their collections and were unwilling to sort of uh, cooperate with the studios in restorations, but that has slowly turned around. In fact, some collectors had that that precious you know, one-off print or uh, stashed away and and they sort of, you know, they knew that one day they were going to get, get that call to say, we understand you have a 70mm print of Vertigo, we want to use it for colour timing in the restoration. Uh, that one, one guy did have that happen. So it took a long time to change, but now the collectors are the unsung heroes of film preservation. But there's still, there's still a lot of untrust not under what's the word, but there's still a lot of mistrust uh, 
uh, in terms of whether they will ever get their prints back, whether they'll be thanked in the right way or just taking the risk of, of giving away their, their prized possession to the studio so they can work with it, they may not get it back. And, look, that that does happen just in the like just from the projection point of view i can i can tell you that the the 70 mil prints that were here in the country and you know we had a, we had a few things we've still got quite a nice collection um and but of course they they they're owned by the rights holders and they change from time to time but the one thing that has remained constant is if uh someone if the owner recalls one of our prints and we have to give it back then we know we're never going to see it again, no matter what they say. Oh, yeah, no, no, we'll send it back after we do this special off, one-off screening. We never see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something that's really vital and important to the whole notion of not only film restoration but more projectionists showing films in 70 mils and, 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 and especially like newer films as well is filmmakers um, such as... Um, Quentin Tarantino, who who plays a part in, in in the documentary with the release of Hateful Eight when that came out, other filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson, they still insist on, on shooting on film, um, and whether their films get shown in, on on through uh, you know traditional projection on film is another thing entirely. I know when The Master came out, there were a number of seventy millimeter screenings uh, at that time, but then on the other end, you have other filmmakers like say uh, Michael Mann or David Fincher who really have transitioned over to digital. Um, I think the biggest one that kind of shocked me was uh, Martin Scorsese. Um, back in 2012, he transitioned from film to digital with The Wolf of Wall Street. And his, his reasoning was, is just he couldn't fight against the tide anymore. You know, he's like, um, it just mm. had to be done that way. And, and he's gone even more further into that because now he's doing films for Netflix and for Amazon um, and I guess a lot of that comes down to they're going to offer the funding that other traditional studios want. They're too busy doing superhero movies to fund anything that he's going to do, which is a shame. But, you know, that's that's what's really what's yeah. happening there. But when it comes to those filmmakers, the Tarantinos, the Paul Thomas Andersons, the, the Christopher Nollers and, and many more like that, them still standing up not only for film, um, filming with film, with celluloid, you know, a, a lot of times. How important is that um, in regards to keeping the spirit of that uh, of showing movies in film, living up to the artistic representation of how films are supposed to be were made in the first place. How important is that that those filmmakers still do what they do and they will continue to do it, um, even as we become more increasingly uh, digitized uh, uh, from this moment on? Uh, critical. In, in fact, those big three that you just meant mentioned were instrumental in saving Kodak, the last manufacturer of film. They actually stood up and and brokered a deal with studios to say, okay, we're all going to sign a pact here to say that you will buy this much film from Kodak every year, um, and in turn they will continue to exist to provide it. Uh, and thank God that happened because um, now we find that uh, we're finding this this nice medium point. I think in that a lot of films are now being shot on film, shot on thirty five, so that we get that cinematic look and then scanned, um, and then the, the rest of the process is all digital. Uh, and I think that's a great, a great midpoint because we still retain the artistic cinematic look that film provides, but we have all the advantages of digital, uh, digital distribution as well. 
Um, but it is really important for filmmakers to continue to use it. Otherwise, it, it will disappear. And, of course, The Hateful Eight was a great uh, jumping-off point. I think that really inspired a whole new generation of filmgoers to see what film can look like. And being shot in, for Tarantino to go back and shoot in, in 276, which is, you know, single-end Cinerama or Ultra Panavision, was just a massive undertaking and an inspired visionary thing to do because just the, the process of getting the film ready um, uh, um, excited uh, film goers and, uh, and people just because, you know, they love Tarantino's films and now he's doing this amazing thing with 70 mil that I've never heard about. And then they went and saw it and it was just breathtaking. Um, and, I have friends, friends who are my age, who you know, we lived through the widescreen era or the you know the last part of it, and they they come out at the end of the session to me and they're just like dumbfounded. They said, "I had no idea it could actually look like that," and and that's what we need to preserve is that there's a whole heap of people now that are going, "Oh, hang on, there's this thing called film, you know, and it's it represents the entire history of of the art form." Um, and it's now a point of difference. It's it's where where digital projection has, for many of the multiplexes, has been boiled down to this very minimal, drab experience where there is no there's no curtains on the screen, there's no masking, there's no warm up music. When the lights go out, they're just turned off. They're not dimmed. So it it and it's it doesn't it it feels like a mechanical recorded thing and there's 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 no there's no projectionist there's no art to it there's no presentation so uh film is going to bring that back because the the only people that are running film are projectionists and are people who care about that entire visual experience that you that you enjoy when you you go to the cinema in that way so i i think film is finding its feet again um no, I don't think anybody could have predicted that all of this would have happened in the first d decade of digital projection. And I'm so glad that this film took that long to make because it means that I have this really broad, encompassing viewpoint, world viewpoint on, on this first important decade. Uh, yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because when you look on the, on, uh, the music side of things, a lot of younger um listeners younger people um you know they are there are a lot of people are on the spotify's and etc but a lot of people are actually buying vinyl now um and that's mm -hmm. kind of like almost kind of like a, a kind of like a music equivalent to like the to, to what um celluloid or film might be and i don't know if you know this but they're actually starting to re-release -re new music on cassette again um there's select copies yes. of cassette coming out again as well which is kind of interesting as well do you think it's a thing where a lot of the younger generation are kind of catching on into the things that I might have missed out on during the first formative years of their life. And now that they learn more about it as they got older and they're experiencing the more organic nature of an art form, whether it be vinyl, whether it be film, that they uh, want more of that. And from that, hopefully more demand will come for more screenings um, of uh, film print. I think, yeah, definitely uh, interest is growing in, in seeing film print and, and yeah, vinyl is that, that very easy comparison because we've, we've seen that re-emerge now and it has become, you know, it's, it's something to be prized and owned and it's different. And, and it's, all, it's also that, that, um, that attraction of analogue, 
something about a physical representation of the recording, whether it be you know particles on a tape or or a piece of film. Um, there's, there's something about the the tiny little impurities of those systems that we can identify more with as humans. Um, the fact that they need to be manned, as I said before, that's that's a big part of it. I think you have somebody there who's putting on a show for you, putting on a show for you. So you're not just going and sitting in a room and watching a recording. You're actually there, and someone's someone's going to the trouble of putting on a show for you. Yeah. Um, cassettes, cassettes is interesting. I, I, I was even at the time I was never a big fan of cassettes. I or I had to use them a lot. Um, but I always found them a little bit low in quality comparatively. Like I had a reel-to-reel recorder as well, so I was I was more about you know the high-end tape. Um, but I, cassettes is is interesting because it's I guess it's the portability. Maybe it's because that set of people were kids when their parents were running cassettes. Mm. I, I'm I'm very interested to see whether cassettes will actually keep going as uh, as a nostalgic medium or whether it's just a, a flash in the pan thing or maybe that's just my bias towards them uh, i don't know why but it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes and also where the future of our uh, film in cinema goes as well for everyone out there listening november 25 in select cinemas across australia splice here a projected odyssey please go to splice here.website um, it actually has a now showing tab and it shows all the different screenings and it shows a lot of kind of Q&A screenings as well in uh, varied uh, cities and states across Australia. I know here in Sydney, we're going to have a screening at the, the Ritz uh, very soon on the 29th, I could see here. Um, uh, yeah, Yarraville on the 25th, um, uh, Brisbane at the New Farm Five Star and on the 27th, the Orpheum Cremorne on the 30th, um, all the way up to... Uh, the 13th uh, of December, we've had uh, those uh, Q&A screenings and a bunch of other screenings as well. I know you said before that the Sun down in Melbourne are going to do a long run of it as well. Um, so there is ample opportunity for people to go out there to watch this film, learn something. It's been, you know, even after all these years, I've been doing this for 16 years, it's nice to watch a documentary like yours, Bob, and learn new things and and delve deeper into the um, the processes of uh, of of um, uh, projection, uh, projection uh, projecting film um, and the processes of um, uh, maintaining, preserving film. I think it's really important that a lot of film fans can understand a lot of this stuff and delve into the the history and, and the, the the present state and also the hopeful future that this will come from it. Um, and hopefully your film um, will help a lot of people uh, have a much deeper and better appreciation uh, for film and for the projectionists as well. Those little those guys in those little rooms, uh, in those dark rooms uh, um, that are so dearly missed in a lot of cinemas. And uh, Rob Murphy, I thank you so very much for your time today. Thank you for your film. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Hopefully we can uh, do it again sometime. I hope so. Thanks, Matt. I've enjoyed it.